This is really, for most Democrats, I think they agree with the Biden administration. This is quite a low salience issue. They don't place too much importance on it. They don't think that there's any real chance that America can change this situation anytime soon. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. On this podcast, we go behind the headlines and provide deep explainers about the politics and foreign policy of the United States. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe, tell a friend, and help us grow. For day-to-day commentary, you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Gawt. That's at A-N-D-Y-G-A-W-T. A lot has happened in Israel and the Palestinian territories in the last month. Um, A few weeks ago, I recorded a bonus episode about this near the beginning of a conflict which had begun between Israel and Hamas, and this conflict ultimately killed several hundred people, mostly Palestinians. That conflict ended up being rather short compared to previous rounds of escalation between these two sides. But in the 10 days or so of fighting, this kind of debate opened up in the United States, and it centered around support for Israel. And particularly the way that this debate played out in the Democratic Party seemed new and consequential to lots of people and it got an awful lot of coverage in the media. And a lot's been said over the last couple of weeks about how the Democratic Party's stance towards Israel is changing. And I wanted to to kind of pitch in on this topic because I think some of what's been said is good and some of what's been said has been not so good and a little bit short-termist. So in this episode, I'm going to break down my view of what's been happening in the Democratic Party with this debate over Israel. I'll tell you right away that I think that the media and Republicans have got a little bit carried away in characterizing how the position of Democrats has shifted. They often focus on on the most extreme voices. And it's really been people on the left wing of the party that have been saying things that were new. So naturally, this got an awful lot of media coverage. But I think if you just focus on what these voices were saying, then you get a little bit of a mis sort of characterization of the state of the party as a whole. And, you know, the the way that this gets filtered through media discourse leads to this focus on those voices, because... Of course, the media wants to focus on what's new. Republicans want to focus on the voices that they characterize as kind of the most extreme and the most radical in an attempt to paint the whole Democratic Party as having this this much more radical position. But, you know, and and the reason that they do that is because support for Israel among the American public is is still very, very high. About 75% of Americans overall have a favorable impression of Israel. So Republicans think that they see a real weak spot here um, on the Democratic side if they can try and paint Democrats as an anti-Israel party and place them out of step with American public opinion. But uh, so I think, you know, also, you know, to add to that is the fact that progressives, many of whom are the voices that we hear the most on Twitter and kind of overrepresented in the media, have been really happy about this shift that seems to have taken place in the party and these new voices who have been much more critical of Israel. So I think when when all that boils down from both the left and the right and then just from the media as a whole, you have, I think, an overemphasis on the bit that changed, but you have an un- underemphasis on what stayed the same. 
So to try and break this down, I'm going to talk about three different actors. Firstly, Joe Biden, who's the president, so he's kind of an important guy. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what I characterize as the mainstream of the party and just try and explain where the party as a whole is. And then thirdly, I'm going to talk about the, the progressive critique that has emerged and got a lot of attention over the last few weeks. So to begin by talking about Joe Biden and, and the people around him, and the reason to do this, as I said, is because he's the president, he's a really important guy. And in fact, foreign policy crises like this just really drive home how important it is who is president. You know, American foreign policy is set to such a large extent by what the president says and, and, and does. And yeah, you know, that's worth focusing on. Even just what he says is so, so very important. American foreign policy often is what the president says it is. And this is why during the conflict, we saw so much emphasis and so many people were wondering when Biden would call for a ceasefire. Because just by uttering those words, he makes that United States policy. And he himself is the only person with the power to do that, to say that. So who the president is, who his advisors are, are very important. What you have in Joe Biden as a president is someone who is a very, very staunch supporter of Israel, but not so much of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think really key to understanding this whole issue is how Biden got to that place and how the Democratic mainstream got to that place. Netanyahu has been Prime Minister of Israel for a long time now, about 12 years, and over that time he's, he's had basically three presidents. He had Obama, then Trump, and then Biden. And of course Biden was Obama's vice president, and it was during the Obama administration that there was a real breakdown in relations between Democrats and the Israeli government led by Netanyahu, and a lot of this to, was to do with the nuclear deal that America was trying to negotiate with Iran during Obama's term. So in 2015, Netanyahu came to the US, came to Congress at the invitation of Republicans who at that time controlled Congress and gave a speech condemning the negotiations that were taking place between Washington and Tehran at that time, basically saying that the, these nuclear negotiations are a betrayal of Israel, that the Obama administration is selling out Israeli security. And that was designed to play into American domestic politics to the advantage of the Republicans. It was very, very clear what Netanyahu was doing. He was basically coming to the US at the invitation of the Republican Party and then repeating these same lines that the Republicans themselves used to criticize the Obama administration. So this was a really, really big shift, you know, a really big kind of turning point in the way that many Democrats viewed Netanyahu himself. I'll say more about that in a minute and its effect on the party as a whole, but I think it's worth noting that it's quite remarkable that Biden didn't allow himself to be actually affected by, by this shift too much during the conflicts that just took place. So the, the main controversy over Biden's actions in, in the conflict that just happened was that he didn't call for a ceasefire until it was pretty clear that Israel already you know, wanted a ceasefire, that, that they felt that they'd accomplished what they wanted to accomplish in terms of degrading Hamas's missile capabilities and, and, and other aspects of, of its military organization. Many, many Democrats wanted Biden to call for a ceasefire much earlier in the conflict when it was becoming clear how many civilian casualties were happening in Gaza, and particularly after an Israeli missile strike brought down a media complex in the Gaza Strip that hosted many uh, media organizations. Why Biden didn't call for a ceasefire earlier is the primary controversy that, that's attached to his behavior in this conflict and it's quite difficult I think to actually figure out the reasons for that because we can use logic to try and figure out what they might be 
we can look at what's been reported in news outlets. But it's very difficult to get inside that the head of Biden and his quite tight-knit circle of close advisors, and we always have to bear in mind that whatever is said to the media about the administration's justifications might be just, you know, been said for public relations purposes and not actually reflects their internal thinking. So what the administration has said is that so their defense of not calling for a ceasefire earlier is to basically say two things. So firstly, they said that if Israel was pushed by the United States to call a ceasefire earlier than it wanted, that that might have actually led Israel to dig in. The Israeli government, Netanyahu, given his political struggles at home, where he's wanting to appear strong, he's not going to want to look like he backed down in the face of pressure from Washington. So that pressure could actually be counterproductive. It could lead the Israeli government to continue the conflict for even longer than they plan to. The other reason the administration gave for not calling for this ceasefire earlier was that, so they point to previous rounds of fighting that have taken place, and particularly one in 2014, where John Kerry went to the Middle East on behalf of the Obama administration. He actually drafted big sections of a ceasefire text that he wanted Israel and Hamas to sign, and then he ended up having to come home with that document unsigned. And many people looked back on, on this process and said that actually he made things worse. He dragged out this diplomatic process by sort of blundering into it, when it would have been much better to leave regional actors to... to um, find the text of a ceasefire and implement it, which is what happened in this case where Egypt stepped into this role that it's taken many, many, many times of negotiating a ceasefire between the two sides. So these are the reasons that the administration gave, but I think we should also realize that there's a big unspoken part of this, because if they thought that it would have been to their domestic political benefit to come out and call for this ceasefire earlier, then they would have done that, I think, anyway. And what's clear to me is that they really see this as a political loser domestically. Biden really doesn't want to get in the position of being painted by Republicans, has been soft on Israel. He doesn't want to cross American public opinion, which is very reflectively pro-Israel. So the politics really lined up with these strategic considerations that they claim to have been mostly following as well. And they really felt that it was best just to keep their heads down and, and not say anything that might cause them domestic political problems at home. And it's really clear to me that the administration viewed this as a short-term problem to be managed before they got back to other things. The administration really has not made the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a big priority, they don't think they can solve the problem after so many previous attempts by American administrations have failed, and they really just want to focus on domestic problems, and they want to focus on what they view as more important foreign policy challenges like Russia and China. This also then, it very much contradicts the administration's claim that it's going to place human rights at the center of its foreign policy, because that's really not what we saw during this conflict at all. So I think we've had a little insight here into how highly exactly the administration ranks that priority compared to strategic considerations and compared to domestic considerations, which I think are really most important. It is true that now the fighting is over, the Biden administration is looking to the long term, so they're promising an aid package to help to rebuild Gaza. 
They're reopening a consulate in Jerusalem, which has previously been kind of America's embassy to the Palestinians unofficially. So they're trying to send the signal that they are interested in peace building in the region, but it's certainly not a priority for them. And we've really witnessed that during this conflict that just took place. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. I think that's an interesting context for considering where I would characterize the mainstream of the Democratic Party to be today. And I actually don't really think that it's that far from the Biden administration position. For all the criticism that Biden got during this last conflict, I think he's actually quite close to the mainstream of the party on this issue. And to understand this or to support my argument, I would point to the polling that's been done over the past 10 or 20 years about what Americans and Democrats particularly think about Israel and think about the conflict. We see a really complicated picture in this polling, but a few things emerge that I think are really important. So the first way is that even today, Democrats have a very, very favorable view of Israel compared to their views of the Palestinian Authority. Now, of course, no pollster goes and asks, what's your view of Hamas? Because, you know, uniformly, Americans are going to have a very, very, very negative view of Hamas. So they ask views about the Palestinian Authority, which is the the Palestinian government um, led by the Fatah party that, that controls much of the West Bank, but doesn't control the Gaza Strip. But 64% of Democrats say that they view Israel favorably, and only 38% of Democrats view the Palestinian Authority favorably. I think that that data point right away tells you something. What's even more interesting is to look at the trends over time, um, so over kind of the last 20 years or, or so. And what's interesting is that Democrats' sympathy with Israel has not really changed much over that whole time, despite everything that happened. If you think that the year 2000 was the end of the Camp David peace process, it was the year that the Second Intifada began, it was followed by these waves of terrorism and military operations that, that racked the region, the rise of Hamas, the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza. So much has happened during that period, particularly the, the peace process has become moribund. You know, nobody really believes that a two-state solution is possible anymore. But at the start of that period, about 20 years ago, 48% of Democrats said that their sympathies lay more with the Israelis than the Palestinians, and today that figure is 42%. So there hasn't really been a huge change over that time in how Democrats view the Israelis, but what has happened over that time is that many Democrats have moved from saying that they have no opinion or they don't sympathize with either side more than the other to say that they sympathize more with the Palestinians. So as that Israeli number has stayed pretty stable, the number of Democrats sympathizing with the Palestinians has been increasing, taking away from this group that previously said they they just didn't really know or have any sort of opinion. And you see the biggest rises in that number after Netanyahu gave this speech to the US Congress in 2015 that was viewed as so highly partisan. 
And that's basically left us with a situation now where the party is pretty much split between support or sympathies for the Israelis versus the Palestinians. So the number's about 42% in the Gallup poll who say they sympathize more with Israel and about 39% who say they sympathize more with the Palestinians, and the don't know number is down to about 18%. The other thing that has really changed in the party over this period, but, but mostly recently, is that Democrats have become much more likely to say that it's very important that America puts pressure on Israel to solve the conflict, rather than saying that the pressure should be put on the Palestinians. And again, we see this big increase in that number after this Netanyahu speech in 2015. So back in about 2007, Democrats were roughly split on who they said the US should pressure more to make concessions and compromises to solve the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Today, Democrats are 20% more likely to say that it's Israel that needs to be pressured to solve this conflict. So really seeing Israel now as bearing responsibility for moving this conflict forward into a situation of peace and taking steps to get us towards peace. So I think that when you look at all these numbers, you basically have very high overall support for Israel, but an increasing sympathy also for the Palestinians and the belief that it's Israel that needs to be making the moves and the compromises to, to make progress in this situation. And I think a few important points emerge from looking at that picture. One of them is that just purely from a pragmatic perspective, from his point of view, you really can't overestimate what a blunder it was for Netanyahu to come to America and make that speech in 2015 and really make it appear like he was intervening in American domestic politics against the Democrats and kind of to transform this into a partisan issue in some way. I also think, though, that the fact that he was willing to do that shows that he has such incredible faith in the overall support for Israel that exists within America, if he really believed that he was going to turn the Democrats completely against the alliance with Israel and that they were going to move to cut off, you know, funding and stop weapons sales and make Israel an international pariah in an attempt to end this conflict, he just wouldn't have done that. It would make no sense to alienate one of the two main political parties in your superpower patron's politics to that extent. So I think that shows you actually how much faith Netanyahu has in the continuation of the American-Israeli alliance, even as opinions have shifted in the Democratic Party some, somewhat. Also, we can't just ascribe everything to this Netanyahu speech. There have been other things that have been happening as well that have, have led to this shift in the Democratic Party, I think. These are particularly changes in Israeli politics. So Israeli politics has moved very far to the right over the last decade or so, particularly over the last four or five years. You know, the right wing of Israeli politics has become much more prominent. It's clear that they no longer have any serious plans for a peace process or a two-state solution. The settlement movement, you know, so this is where Israeli settlers go and annex parts of the West Bank that by international law belong to the Palestinians. This has really moved to the center of Israeli politics. So the settlers used to be quite on the fringes, but now that they, they take part in governing coalitions, Naftali Bennett, who's the new prime minister of Israel, probably after the negotiations that take place this week, really has his roots in that movement. And I think also 
there's you know this change has partly been if 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 you lived through the 90s and the early 2000s when there was a serious hope it seemed of ending this conflict when israel particularly was taking some steps to negotiate peace it was taking some steps to end the occupation just to see that completely grind to a halt and then go into reverse to the extent that it now looks like the Israeli right is really settling in for the indefinite occupation of the Palestinian territories, that's going to change the way that, that people from the outside view what's happening there. And I think that has changed the way many Democrats view the conflict. And of course, it's going to lean to them saying that more pressure should be put on Israel to end its behavior. So I think that what we're seeing is a really complex picture. It's not by any means, though, one in which you can characterize the mainstream Democratic Party has now been anti-Israel. It's just one in which opinions have become more complex and there's now more sympathy with the Palestinians, more desire to use America's leverage to put pressure on Israel to try to end this status quo that just keeps generating a conflict in Gaza every two years or so. But and I think this actually isn't that far away from Biden's position. The Democrat, Democratic senators called for a ceasefire just one day before Biden did. So I think that the mainstream picture, it's complicated. It's not too far away from Biden is. And I think that the closing observation that's also really important is that this is really, for most Democrats, I think they agree with the Biden administration. This is quite a low salience issue. They don't place too much importance on it. They don't think that there's any real chance that America can change this situation anytime soon. So that means that they they also, like the Biden administration, would basically like to not have to talk about this for it to go away so that they can focus on domestic issues and foreign policy problems where they really see the opportunity to make a difference. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. There's one group for whom everything I've said so far is pretty much not true. They do see this as a very important issue. They do think the United States can be impactful and influential, and they do want to make a general stand on principle. And this is the group of Democrats, uh, people in Congress and activists outside of of Congress who can broadly be characterized as foreign policy progressives. So the most visible group of people that I'm talking about here are members of Congress, particularly those members of Congress who are known as the squad. So that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley. Then they've also been joined recently by Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman. There's also some more old school progressives who who aren't so much in the squad, but they're very associated with it on this issue. The foremost of those is Mark Pocan from Wisconsin, who comes from this more kind of Midwest traditional progressivism in American politics. He's joined the squad in taking this much, much stronger line against Israel. And this group have been much stronger in both their rhetoric and in the policy actions that they want the US to take. So some members of the squad called Israel an apartheid state during the conflict. 
Elon Omar equated Israeli airstrikes in Gaza with terrorism. This group have called for the US to suspend weapons sales to Israel. Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar have also endorsed the boycott sanctions and divestment movement, which calls for a huge campaign of international pressure to be put on Israel until it makes a, a big series of concessions, many of which are, are bright red lines for, for almost all actors in Israeli politics. But it's clear that, you know, these Congress people really want America to put international pressure on Israel to the broadest extent possible, including sanctioning Israel until it makes concessions to the Palestinians and brings the conflict to an end somehow. Now, these figures are channeling something very real for sure, and that's the increasing frustration that's felt particularly by younger adults who are much more likely to sympathize with the Palestinians, and mainly by the group of Americans who we can describe as very liberal. Voters whose ideology is categorized as very liberal make up only about 15% of, of Americans who identify as Democrats, so as a percentage of the American population that they're much smaller than that. But they are a, a part of the Democratic coalition, and I think that it's these people that, that these figures in Congress are really representing and channeling the views of. But we also shouldn't over-exaggerate the size of this group as part of the Democratic Party. It's only 15% of the Democratic Party who identify as very liberal. And in turn, they are the only group among the American population who say that they sympathize more with the Palestinians than they do with the Israelis by about 15%. What's been leading to this shift in opinions by liberal Democrats, very liberal Democrats, is really interesting and worth focusing on, though. And that's the, the way that this framework of racial justice, which has been drawn from American domestic politics and particularly Black Lives Matter, is increasingly been applied to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So for Americans who've been very focused in the past few years on violence being inflicted on non-white Americans by security forces and by the militarized police in the US, it's been very natural to see the Israeli occupation increasingly through the same racial justice lens. And this leads to really the opposite of the Biden administration's approach. So if the Biden administration basically wants this conflict to go away and not really to think about it too much because they want to focus on other priorities, liberals and progressives see that actually getting involved in ending this conflict is part of a very urgent campaign of racial justice that they see themselves waging both domestically and abroad. They think that the United States should really be applying as much leverage and as much of its power as possible to trying to end this unsustainable long-term occupation of the Palestinians by the Israelis and seeing that as an urgent moral imperative. So really bring to life the, these promises about human rights that the Biden administration has made, but doesn't seem to be bearing in mind at all when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And in a way, uh, to, to, to kind of prove my point about the way that the conversation in the Democratic Party hasn't really shifted, I think that if we see that now this conflict is over and then basically the Biden administration moves on to other things, then that shows us that this progressive position, which is really distinguished most of all by the importance that it places on this issue and, and the way that it thinks that it's a really urgent 
task, a moral task to get involved with. If the US doesn't remain focused, then I think we, we really have the answer to our question about whether the progressive movement is now really kind of driving the car when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian policy on the part of the US. So despite that, I do think as well that there is a sense in which generational change is definitely coming. Having Joe Biden, who's such an old white guy, become the head of the Democratic Party, which is increasingly a younger, non-white party, a more left-wing party, more progressive party, that has delayed this kind of generational and ideological changing of the guard in the party. So I think that there'll be what will seem like a very abrupt movement between him and the next Democratic president. And that president is, I think that on a range of issues, but I think that the next president is more likely to pressure Israel, is more likely to be more vocal in their criticism of Israel. And I think that it's easy for me to imagine a future Democratic president who was different from Biden, mainly on the salience. So viewing this question more through the human rights and racial justice lens and definitely saying a lot more, rhetorically doing a lot more work to pressure Israel and try to tell Israel that its long-term behavior is unsustainable and, and unacceptable. So they definitely might place more emphasis on the issue. But I also think if you look at where the mainstream of the party is, as I've tried to explore in this episode, and also where the rest of America is, because the you know if, if I've said that the mainstream of the Democratic Party is still very pro-Israel, I think the American mainstream is even more pro-Israel than that. I think we're really far from a dramatic break with Israel from Washington, and I don't see that changing anytime soon primarily because of the strength of support for Israel among the public at large. So I hope you found my thoughts on this topic interesting. I thought this was a, a good opportunity for what I like to think is a classic American Explained episode where I can take an issue in the headlines, something that was been, we've been talking about a lot in the news recently, and really try to dig deeper, look at the assumptions that have been made in that debate, call them into question, and try and place things in more of a historical perspective. If you like the way that my podcast does this, please remember to subscribe. Please tell a friend about us. Help to get the word out on social media. And remember, you can always drop me an email at producer at america-explained.com. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>